Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and some of those files you were looking for. This time we're listening to Healing Tones with the artist Karen Donnellan, Luke Fowler on the Scottish filmmaker Margaret Tate, and performance poets Bambi and Disraeli will share some bars from WOMAD 22. But we're starting this week at the bookshelf again in the company of Paddy Woodworth, who's helping us gather the essential nature writing for the journey ahead. Head. This time, Paddy is looking at the writings of American naturalist John Hay. Hay wrote more than a dozen books on the natural world, spanning the 1950s to the 1990s, a taste of which are gathered in the anthology we take down this time from the naturalist bookshelf, The Way to the Salt Marsh by John Hay. The richest books, I think, turn out to be those that we find to be mostly tasty and nourishing the first time around and yet may still feel that some passages are indigestible, some ideas impenetrable. And then, when you go back to them a second time, some of these passages open up to you, deepening your understanding and delight in the author's vision. In the case of The Way to the Salt Marsh, an edited collection of extracts from the prolific work of the American nature writer John Hay, I have gone back to this book at least four times. I feel its electric impact more deeply with each rereading, and paragraphs that seemed obscure become transparent. It was gifted to me in 2003 by its editor, the gentle but fierce poet and scholar Christopher Merrill, who had mentored me and so many others on the International Writing Programme at the University of Iowa. Merrill had also introduced me to ecological restoration, which became the main theme of my own writing. My copy of Salt Marsh is now dog-eared with dozens of yellow stickies, and I find I have 4,000 words of notes on it in a document I had completely forgotten. Like many of the writers we have taken down from my bookshelf for this programme, Hay pays very close and patient attention to the detail of nature in the immediate present. And then he links these observations to intense speculation about the human place in nature. His reflections are always open-ended, sometimes dense and difficult, but more illuminating and bracing on each reading. Let's listen to this mix of observation and speculation as he focuses on a motionless rubber fly for ten vivid minutes. It has a throbbing abdomen and a look of contained vitality. It is not to be known, he adds cryptically, but then continues. I see the brown, glazed wings folded back in the sunlight and two black, skylight eyes on the top of its head. Hay acknowledges that this insect is a tough predator, and he recognises the troubled thoughts that this triggers in him. Can we, he asks, call this fly cold, indifferent to pain, careless of life, even darkness personified, and then he dismisses his own questions. Our terms are useless, he continues. I do not know. But this agnosticism about applying human values to animal actions does not stop him finding some kind of essential value, a meaning beyond meaning perhaps, in the natural world as a whole. 
he unblinkingly records the ongoing loss of habitats and species in the New England coastal systems where he spent most of his life. And yet he is still uplifted by his sense that this world is full of wild, unparalleled desire. Paying attention to all that remains evokes in him a sense of wonder that verges on the mystical, but is surely familiar in some form to all of us who like to immerse ourselves in landscapes buzzing exuberantly with other lives. Behind the beauty, the savagery, the minnow, the leaf, he writes, there is that which plays with us like light on a wing and is just as uncatchable. This is from his landmark 1969 book, In Defence of Nature. His observations are always fresh and compelling. Reading him is to walk the dynamic North Atlantic coastline and its near interior with someone intimately familiar since their childhood with its natural processes and creatures. And yet, at each encounter, he finds them delightfully surprising. And inevitably, exhilarating as his portraits are, they are shadowed with foreboding of loss. Like Rachel Carson, he anticipated the extremity of our current biodiversity and climate crises, and he sees his century's worship of technological progress and consumerism as self-destructive folly. To the degree, he writes, that we become disassociated by our power to exploit from what it is that we exploit, our senses will become atrophied, our skills diminished. Without a new equation, he thinks, in which natural and human need are somehow together, we may be lost. I am painfully aware of how much my sampling of a sampling of Hay's writing omits, and how little it reflects the magic of his multiple encounters with so many fascinating animals and natural phenomena. But I wouldn't want to end on a note of gloom, despite the reality of his times and the ever harsher reality of ours. So I'll conclude with his reflection, standing on the shoreline of a still wild place in Mexico. At night, the dazzling jewels of the Southern Cross climbed their vaulted ladders, and the planets shone like glowworms or like bioluminescent organisms in the sea, while in the forests the animals listened, and the plants stirred in the great silence, sanctioned by plenitude. Paddy Woodworth there with his latest choice for inclusion on The Naturalist Bookshelf, The Way to the Salt Marsh by John Hay. And you can find the other volumes on The Naturalist Bookshelf, including Paddy on Rachel Carson, Aldo Leopold, Nan Shepherd, Helen MacDonald and many more via the RTE Lyric FM site, or you'll find a Naturalist Bookshelf playlist on SoundCloud. Close your eyes and see now as we step through a special portal into the sound world of Karen Donnellan. Donnellan is an Irish artist whose background is in glass but works across media from sculpture to sound, creating work touched by her training in areas such as Reiki, energy and sound healing. Culture Files' Louise McMahon joined the artist, a selection of tuning forks and crystals, along with some mysterious blue and pink objects, for a consultation. 
You're okay, take a breath. <laughs> Relax. What's happening in the room? I have a studio at the Dean Art Studios on Chatham Row, and I've had it since June. It's kind of a lab, it's kind of a playground, um, and it's all sacred. What's happening in the room? It's the first time, really, I think, in my life that I've had this consistent space without any distractions. What's happening in the room? One way of putting it, I think, is where like art meets science and the magic of the overlap in that Venn diagram. What's happening in the room? I love astrology. I love human design. My art to me is sort of making some of those esoteric things tangible and visible. And then I could also add play and joy and colour. What's happening in the room? I came out as queer in the past few years and I feel like that's starting to bloom in the work where there's this wholeness, playfulness and iridescence like colour. The queerness, it's not just about sexuality but it's a deeper truth of who I am. Even the act of coming out is like a shedding of old stuff and a facing of fears. What's happening in the room? It's serious play. It's not necessarily like super self-conscious or self-serious. And I think that about queerness and queer identity and queer politics and unapologetic. I'm going to do it. You can like it or not like it. I really don't care. Yeah, so I just did a live set with Dublin Modular and they did this evening called Voltage 3 and it was a mix of sound artists like doing live sets as well as visual artists doing some kind of interactive installations and performances. I had some live plant frequencies of a pilea plant. Um, so I have this uh, thing called a, a midi sprout. You stick patches onto the leaves. It reads the electricity, like the energy of the plant and converts it into sound. As I'm playing it, sometimes I'll like give the leaves a little, you know what I mean? You can like touch them to stimulate it and it starts like singing more. I had whale vocalizations in there as kind of like a sub, you know, really deep bass. There were uh, water recordings, like a dripping recording that feels like almost like a drum, but it feels stickier. And then there's the cosmic octave tones were in there. And um, and the solfeggio tones too, I think. Yeah, so these are the cosmic, uh, cosmic octave planetary tuning forks. So these were developed by Hans Cousteau, um, a mathematician, and he was thinking about like how Anything that can be measured in the natural world could be translated into a frequency that we can hear. And so the root is 194.18 hertz. And going up through the sacral, the solar plexus, which is sort of the belly button, the heart, the throat, the third eye and the crown. And sacral, 210.42 hertz. In my early 20s, I had major depression and dysthymia, and I went for energy healing consistently every month. Medications were not helping me. I was like, I'm done with this bloody depression. Solar plexus. The healings got more and more intense, and in the end, it honestly felt like an exorcism. Since then, I've mostly felt excellent, and I felt like it really was the only thing that actually worked. Whenever you've come through something like that, the heart, you want to share it whatever way you can. And for me, that's through my work. Meridians or energy centers in the body, when you take them up an octave, they could also be related to particular planets. So for example, and the heart is the same frequency as the cosmic ohm, 136.1 hertz, and it's the throat chakra. 
around the throat also relates to the planet Mercury. And in astrology, Mercury is Wednesday and Mercury is communication. And you might have heard about Mercury retrograde where like communication can go haywire. What's happening in the room? These are the sacred solfeggio tones. And I'm starting off at 174 hertz. And this one's usually um, for uh, easing physical pain. And then this is 528 hertz and is known as the love frequency or the miracle tone. So I'm in this show. It's a collaborative project called Blow Harder, Exhale with Bigger. And then 639 hertz. text-based project that's related to glassblowing studios and the language in glassblowing studios has just a kind of a misogynist and sexist history as in 741 the hertz. main reheating chamber is known as a glory hole and there's plenty more where that came from and so myself and Suzanne Peck who's a New York based artist we've been working on this and 852 hertz since probably 2017 and we've generated some posters we have a website um, and two of the posters were purchased by the Corning Museum of Glass and part of this travelling exhibition called New Glass Now so it's this massive international survey of contemporary art, craft and design that uses glass or is a sort of like conceptual social practice what's happening in the room? I think just joy The 528 Hertz miracle note there, gifted by artist Karen Donnellan, and the reporter was Louise McMahon. New Glass Now, the travelling exhibition mentioned, is currently at Toyama Glass Museum in Japan, if you're in the neighbourhood. Is poetry something you can watch? One of those who tried to find out was the Scottish poet and filmmaker Margaret Tate, who, after attending film school in Rome in the 1950s, returned to Scotland to make more than 30 personal poetic films that didn't even seek a comfortable place in what wasn't at the time called the media sphere. Since then, Tate's reputation has grown and now gets a fresh boost from Glaswegian artist-filmmaker and Turner Prize nominee Luke Fowler, who's previously explored such figures as R.D. Lang and Cornelius Cardew. Fowler's film on Tate, Being in a Place, was made from his own 16mm shoots on Orkney, as well as the cinematic leftovers of Tate's work on the island. It's currently on show at the Void Gallery in Derry. Fowler spoke to Culture File about a place in the world for Margaret Tate's personal cinema and for his own. Children are prose, but poetry's their world. With those early eyes, they see what we don't see, but will we... There's something about things that are in the background and they become so familiar that they're, um, what's it they say, they're sort of like um, overseen in in, uh, <laughs> in in daylight, you know, it's just that sort of thing of like, um, you know, something that's just so familiar, then it becomes part of the furniture and you take it for granted and that was really the the case with with margaret you know i had seen a couple like i loved portrait of ga i'd seen blue black permanent and i'd seen you know i loved the hugh mcdermott film and but yeah i i hadn't really digged deeper and then sarah neely who was writing a book about margaret told me about this box of reels that she'd found in, uh, or she'd been given by Margaret's husband. That was the thing that really uh, was the catalyst for making the film. And she said to me, you know, I really want to, you know, I don't know what to do with this stuff. It's just sitting in my house in a box. And um, so I said to her, well, we could make a film out of it. 
But in the north, the spring is a hard time. Birdsong pierces and strong winds blow. Margaret Tate was a, was a, was a pre-eminent Scottish experimentalist. She studied under Rossellini in the, uh, the Centro Experimental in the 50s when um, neorealism was the thing. But the thing that interested her was the short films that came on before the features. And so she that her time in Rome was, was really important for her. And then she came back to Scotland and started making short films in Scotland. Um, she started with portrait films. She started exploring that, making portraits of her mother. Her films were much more poetic. They didn't have that documentary realism. They didn't conform to the sort of rigid structures of documentary film at the time. And that's really the story of Margaret's life. She didn't really conform to any genre of filmmaking. She was her own canon, which in the end she called film poems. She kept on reaching out to companies like Guinness and all these organisations like the BBC to try and get commissions and Channel 4 to try and get commissions and you know they just knocked her back at every stage every hurdle and I don't know whether that was because she was a woman or because they looked at her her films and they thought that they looked amateurish they were very uh, derisory of um, and denigratory of her camera work which now people look at and find, you know, enchanting. But at the time, she maybe it, it, it looked a bit shoddy or something, I don't know. Unconventional, anyway. So, um, this is Sunday, 7th of August, 1966. One of the concerns of my film as well is that it's very easy to go to Orkney and film the tourist locations and film all the magnificent sunsets and wonderful, you know, landscapes and scenery and um, Neolithic sites. I was counting. Nine million and twelve, nine million and thirteen, nine million and fourteen. Well, well, time passes. But that really, you know, doesn't say much about the people that live there now. And it doesn't say about how the people have left their mark or how they've shaped the landscape. And so she saw the people of Orkney as being inextricable from the land itself. A film about Orkney um, that just concentrates on the landscape is really missing something. I mean, I never subscribed to this idea of documentary objectivity. I always felt that films that are made by somebody that has an agenda, quite often an ideology. We can't escape who we are, so it's much better to declare that on camera, declare our you know, interests and our, our background than to hide behind a smokescreen. I wonder, is it inevitable that the approaches she was using start to find a place in the mainstream? Because I w- I've been watching recently... Um, uh, How To with John Wilson. I don't know if you've seen that at all. It's a first-person documentary, but he shoots New York and just shoots, you know, tiny little aspects of it and lets the the kind of little frames of, you know, video poetry kind of speak for themselves. And I, I was thinking, well, it is, it, it, that is actually quite a mainstream language even. Talking to the wrong person, I don't watch television. 
<laughs> I, 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 hate, I hate it. Tell me more about that. You used to be on the television. It was a great thing in the, when you were on Channel 4, was it not? <laughs> that, was a great, that was a great three minutes of my life, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I just found it a, a, a colossal waste of time, and I, I'd just much rather watch films of my choosing, so... That attitude to television, is that something that comes from, you know, the demise of things like Channel 4's Three Minute Wonders? There, there, was, a, there was a point where it seemed like independent cinema might, uh, or experimental cinema might even cross over with the mission of Channel 4. It's like that went away. Yeah, that was, I was talking about that last, last night. I grew up watching a lot of television with my dad and... Uh, on Channel 4 and BBC 2 and, you know, it was always Fassbinder or, you know, Peter Greenaway or Tarkovsky or great documentaries that were being made. That's really lacking now. When I started going down that whole Big Brother, everything having to fit into kind of ratings, the whole rating system, the lack of just bravery, really. Luke Fowler there and his film Being in a Place, a portrait of Margaret Tate, is premiering at the Void Derry and runs until October 29th. And finally on the Culture File Weekly, a trip to Malmesbury in the west of England to this year's WOMAD. The festival was founded by Peter Gabriel 40 years ago this year to showcase music and dance in a genre that at the time was labelled world music. Four decades later, and that term has its issues, but the mission to bring together musics from around the world in a field in Wiltshire remains pretty much the same. Even if the values-driven consumer of 2020 is beginning to wonder about the wisdom of just such gatherings. The music, the dance, the yoga, the poetry and the book launches go on. This time we're meeting two contributors to the poetry programme at WOMAD 22. The novice performance poet Bambi and the veteran of the UK scene, Disraeli. I'm Bambi. I am a spoken word artist, wordsmith, a sharer. As a neurodivergent, I sometimes struggle with how to communicate myself and poetry has felt like a really freeing, abstract way to do that. I don't have to be conventionally okay and fine. I can just be the sound of yellow today. And this is a poem about the culture shock that I had from working on refugee camps for a few years and then coming back to our wonderful Western world. I close my eyes and I'm in Syria and there's a gun to his mother's head and there's a general to his left, the same general who bends him over his leg. That's General Philil Ahmed. But, generally, I've apparently got this clear skin that shields me, you see, so I can be home surrounded by screens showing adverts and memes telling me what I should eat and who I should be, but it doesn't screen the screams that appear in his dreams. The TV would prefer to stream Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. He seems quite unforgiving of undercooked chicken. I think it's such a loving community that somebody comes and watches something like this and they're like, I've got something to say too. And it really, it's not, I don't want to say infecting, but it's spreading amongst all of us. And I feel like there will be someone in that audience that heard my poem and said, yeah, I want to go and do that. I've got something to say. And then they'll do it. We see it here with Kay Tempest on stage. There is somewhere for it to go. You know, there's this meeting of people, but then there's also the the big tent. Yeah, exactly. There's campfires and there's big tents and it's it's all over. I mean, Kay Tempest is one of my biggest inspirations, along with Disraeli. I'm Disraeli. I'm a spoken word 
artist, multi-instrumentalist, singer, and I'm come from Bristol. I'm split wide. This car park's a crucifix. My nervous system's glued to it. Trucks manoeuvre on my insides. Lord, don't let me be a lunatic. I feel too damn much and my logic doesn't fit right. My writing is a mad scrawl. My gut's spinning like a frog on asphalt. My attic is a pigsty. My structure is of jellied eels. Tails buried in my belly. My intestine is a fist fight. And my blood pumps violence. I'm stood clenching by the bins back of Asda with my fists white and my skull is full of stones. Where the fuck's a man supposed to go? There's really exciting things to be to be had from the spoken word scene. I think one is that vulnerability is really explored. Sometimes in ways that are like overly performative, sometimes in ways that are uh, like exploitative, like self-exploitative in weird ways. There's a lot of kind of grief and trauma mining in the spoken word world to kind of win points in a slam which I think is a really dangerous place to get to as a culture but um, just the very fact that people are willing to stand on stage and talk about their struggles with mental illness or whatever it might be that that's something that spoken word has has offered I think and that's a context that gave me courage to to talk about uh, things like my sexuality and my little kind of struggles with mental health and that kind of thing. I think there is an honesty and a, and a rawness that's celebrated there that I that I really uh, revere. You know, yeah. I was walking around last night, seeing all the insane energy use and uh, feeling like this event and events like it are just a madness in the modern age. All the stages I've been to so far. I'm not sure about this one. Yeah, it looks like it. All the stages I've been to so far have single-use plastic bottles of uh, mineral water, which is insane. Um, lots of meat and dairy on site in a way that doesn't seem to be particularly thought through. What's the festival that's getting it right? Shambhala uh, Festival I find really impressive. They have no meat on site now. Um, they have a whole system whereby um, you get financially rewarded if you sort all your own recycling and take it to the recycling point at the end of the festival and stuff like that so they've, they've thought a lot of it through in a way that I find really impressive and in a way that's a step beyond um, kind of PR you know and when you're an artist coming to a festival like this what power do you have? I don't know I think it's important to keep an honest conversation going using the platform to say things that you feel need raising one of the really striking things is that the stage the artists are as diverse as you'll find in any festival and maybe the crowd less so. Do you get that feeling? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah it's the mo- most ethnically mixed, like, performer, uh, like, artist base, least ethnically mixed uh, um, punters. I don't know, I, this is not, like, a theory that I've developed, but, but there's a certain bracket of music which has been called world music, which is obviously, like, an insane umbrella of music influenced by folk traditions from all over the world played by people from very very broadly different places and for different reasons and that world music thing has been quite a liberal middle class white interest in this country isn't it and this this is the mecca for that i mean you could you 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 can do you could write a whole thesis about um world music and colonialism but um uh, which i'm sure has been done many times um but it seems to me that the there's a there's a relationship there isn't there i mean who are the people that get to go to india and find themselves 
who are the people that get to check out the drumming traditions of West Africa in West Africa? Who are the people that have the money to do that kind of travelling? Who are the people that have the, cult- the cultural and ethnic like cachet to do that kind of travelling? Generally, wealthy white people. So who's going to end up at WOMAD? I think that's pretty pretty crude generalisation. And I'm including myself in that bracket, you know, I, I have, yeah, yeah. I have done a lot of travelling um, and a lot of it's been informed by my love of music and folk cultures in particular from different parts of the world. And would I come to WOMAD as a punter? Yeah. Would I be another white face at WOMAD? Yeah, I would. Um, but yeah, it's prob- that's, that's probably part of it, right? Disraeli there, and you heard also from Bambi, and we'll have more from WOMAD 22 in the coming weeks. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more understandable compromises next week. Meanwhile, there are podcasts galore on the Culture File page on the Lyrics site, and the content never stops at Culture File Pod on Twitter. Bye now.